Let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come to study. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us. And as we discuss these uh, issues today, may we have discernment and enlightenment. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We, uh, we are doing lesson number six in our quarterly, Garments of Grace, Clothing Imagery in the Bible. And the l- title this week is Elijah's and Elisha's Mantle. Elijah and Elisha's Mantle. And the memory verse is out of 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. What does this mean? Maybe we should ask, what is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? Jesus had worldly sorrow. What is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? Sorry for the consequences, but not for what you did. Okay. Worldly sorrow is when you're sorry for the consequences of sin. Sorry that you got kicked out of school. Sorry that you lost your allowance. Sorry you got put in jail. Sorry you got AIDS. Sorry you got whatever the consequences are. But you're not sorry for the sin itself. Where godly sorrow, sorry, sorrow, whether there's consequences hit you yet or not, you're sorry for the evil or the selfishness in the heart that led to it. This is out of Review and Herald, uh, June 8, 1911. Godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Um, this is, of course, quoting our memory verse. But the sorrow of the world works death. This is genuine repentance. It, it will lead to a transformation in the life. But when sin is viewed... Uh, in the light of the law of, of the Lord, or the law of God, and its true character is realized, it will be put away from the heart and the life. When sin is viewed in its true character, in the, in the light of the law of God, it will be put away from the heart and life. What, what does that mean, to view sin in the light of God's law and see its true character? Any thoughts about that? How it affects God. Or even us. What do you all think? What is, what is uh, the true character of sin? Yes? The, the true character of what it's doing to us is where God is concerned. That, that's His main concern, what, that sin is destroying us. And we don't realize what it's doing to us. Listen to this. Listen, everybody heard that. Listen to this quote. This is out of um, Christian Education, page 112. There are f- but few who have the, an appreciation of the grievous character of sin and who comprehend the greatness of of the ruin that has resulted from the transgression of God's law. By examining the wonderful plan of redemption to restore the sinner to the moral image of God, we see that the only means for man's deliverance was wrought out by the self-sacrifice and the unparalleled condescension and love of the Son of God. What did you hear in that one? Who's being ruined by sin? The sinner says, yes, the grievous character and who comprehend the greatness of the ruin that has resulted from the transgression of God's law. So what is the problem with transgressing God's law? God gets angry, he gets mad, we must be punished. Is that the problem? Or is, does something actually ruin, get ruined? Does something actually get ruined when we transgress his law? Yeah. And then it says, notice the plan of salvation. Get this. It says the, the plan of redemption to restore the sinner to the moral image of God. I mean, notice this is the plan of salvation is a restorative, a regenerative, a recreative process. It's a rebuilding, a fixing what was broken by sin. This is not saying that plan of salvation uh, to pay the price for the sin that was committed. Yeah, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. And Jude, Tuesday, go ahead. In the beginning, the whole planet was affected by sin. The, the whole planet, absolutely. And the whole planet. Sure. Paul says Even the Rome, universe was affected. Paul says in Romans 8 that all nature groans. My battery died, guys. He's got to fix it. <laughs> okay, there we go. All right, so. It says, the tearing of his robes, a common action at that time to represent uh, horror and sorrow, revealed that he truly accepted the truth of what Elijah said to him. How deep, how long-lasting that repentance went, the text doesn't say. What it does say is that the rending of his robe revealed the sincerity of his heart at the time. So the message given by Elijah, was it a threat of what God will do? Was it really this simply, the words that needed to be heard to bring conviction? How often in Old Testament times, when we hear God speaking certain words, do we take this as some reflection of God's attitude? 
well, God's mad, God's threatening, God's going to get you, rather than realizing the context of who it's spoken to. And say, wait a minute, God spoke the words that that particular mind needed to hear in order to break through the darkness. Anybody ever do any counseling besides me? You've ever had to speak words to, to certain patients that were designed to break through a, a level of denial or distortion? And if somebody just heard those words out of context, they might think, wow, that's a pretty mean thing to say. Yeah. Alrighty. What about the judgment? The judgment. Um, the judgment of no rain until Elijah gives his word. Or God's judgments. What about this idea of God's judgments? What purposes do they serve? Are, God, uh, are the judgments of God some infliction of just deserts on the wicked to make them pay? Or are they God's judgments? In other words, um, what God judges will most likely bring people to repentance and salvation. God judges that this action will be the most therapeutic in this situation. Are these God's judgments? Or are they punishments and inflictions? Well, this idea of the, uh, of the no rain for, for three and a half years, listen to that of Prophets and Kings 121. See if this blows your mind. It was only by the exercise of strong faith and the unfailing power of God's word that Elijah delivered his message. Had he not possessed implicit confidence in the one whom he served, he would never have appeared before Ahab. On his way to Samaria, Elijah had passed over ever-flowing streams, hills covered with verdure, and stately forests that seemed beyond the reach of drought. Everything on which the eye rested was clothed with beauty. The prophet might have wondered how the streams that had never ceased their flow could become dry or how those hills and valleys could be burned by drought. But he gave no place to unbelief. Listen to these words. He fully believed that God would humble apostate Israel and that through judgments they would be brought to repentance. What are the purpose of God's judgments? To punish, to inflict exaction, to, to give somebody their just due payments. Keep reading. The fiat of heaven had gone forth. God's words could not fail. And at the peril of his life, Elijah fearlessly fulfilled his commission. Like a thunderbolt from a clear sky, the message of impending judgment fell on the ears of the wicked king. And what was the purpose of this judgment? To bring him to repentance. Is that how you often hear judgment described? When you've heard God's judgments, do you get a terrifying feeling historically when you hear about God's judgments being visited upon people. They had taken to worshiping Baal, and Baal, they felt, brought the rain and produced the crops and so forth. And God was trying to show the impotence of Baal. This is part of it. Baal, of course, was the God they worshiped who brought the rain and the fertility and all this stuff. So this judgment, as the judgments on Egypt were all showing the impotence of the Egyptian gods, part of the no rain was to show that Baal was powerless to bring rain. And what would that do for a group of people who believes this is your God when you show him powerless? It opens their mind. It brings them to conviction. It shows that, hey, maybe we're wrong. So the judgments of God are exactly what you're saying, to show the impotence of Baal, to bring the people to conviction and repentance. Is that a different way than we've often heard? Oh, you worship a false god, you've been in sin, God's going to bring judgments to punish you. Yes. And even with the ten plagues, people look back and say, ooh, punishments from God. But he was really trying to open Pharaoh's heart even. But the ten plagues occurred, and what happened was not only did the Israelites come out, but lots of Egyptians came out with them. Because they began, he may not have believed, but they did. Exactly. No, exactly right. Does it make a difference to you? Can, can you remember to take forward in your mind this idea of God's judgments being what God judges, the action he needs to take that is most likely to heal, to restore, to be a therapeutic intervention? Will that make a difference in how you think and feel and hear about God versus God's judgment are his punishments? Yes. Do you think it's a distortion to look at God's judgments that way? Or think it's, it's legitimate? to look at God's judgments as his interventions to help, to redeem, to restore, to bring to repentance. 
So how is the Elijah message that we just read, Elijah's message of impending judgment to bring people to repentance, how is that connected to Malachi 4, 5, and 6? But before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, I will send the prophet Elijah. He will bring fathers and children together. Otherwise, I would have come to destroy your country. What is this Malachi prophecy referring to? The three angels' messages. The Elijah message. The Elijah message. Jump to Friday's lesson. First paragraph, Friday's lesson, out of Desire of Ages, page 422. It says this. Elijah, who had been translated to heaven without seeing death, represented those who will be living upon the earth at Christ's second coming and who will be charge changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. When this mortal must put on immortality and this corruption must put on incorruption, Jesus was clothed with the light of heaven and he, as he will appear when he shall come the second time without sin or unto salvation. He will come in the glory of his father and his holy angels. So Elijah back then represents those on the earth that are going to see translation. Do you think that there's a similarity between the message and mission of Elijah and the message and mission of this people who are going to be translated? Yes. Yeah, I had a little bit of a different thought. Um, is Might there be some parallel between the, the final plagues that come on the earth uh, and it, God's effort to, one last effort to, to wake wake people up and to um, jumpstart them out of out of their darkness uh, that, that they've been living in. Uh, what, what was what was the purpose of this drought? The same thing. It, yeah. was to, it was to it was to wake Israel up. It was to to give them discernment. So we see a message. Let's, let's get into this. I want you, I want to, I want to draw this parallel. I want you to see the parallel between Elijah of old, the message that he gave, the situation he was dealing with. And the Elijah message to go forward, the, there was a miraculous drought, a, a judgment, so to speak, for the purpose of bringing to repentance we just read. And will these other judgments be for the same purpose, shaking people out of their complacency and their, and their you know, maze, rat wheel of, uh, of, of, of existence uh, to, to make them think something more significantly? So let's look. Let's just dig into this. What? This is the message Elijah was to bring. And we have a similar role. Elijah gave a message calling people back from idolatry to the worship of the true God. And he went to heaven without seeing death. And we are told that Elijah will present again a message before the coming of the Lord. And those who give this message are going to be translated without seeing death. Maybe not every individual, but the, the, the uh, generation that does it. Um, notice the dynamics of Elijah's day. Here are the dynamics. Religious leaders in Elijah's day, were leading people to worship Baal. Do you think the prophets and priests of Baal thought they were worshiping a false god? Do you think the prophets and priests of Baal were saying in their own minds, hey, you know what, we know Baal is false, but let's lead the people into false worship. Or do you think the prophets and priests were convicted that they were preaching the truth? What do you think? They thought they were preaching the truth. The religious leaders, with their position their prestige, and the conviction of their heart deceived the people of God into worshiping Baal. Now, what was the problem with Baal worship? What was wrong with worshiping Baal? What made Baal, in other words, what made Baal a false god? Was it the word Baal? The syllables put together, B-A-L, B-A-A-L, was that the problem? Uh, was it because they weren't saying Yahweh at the time of worship? And if they had just said Yahweh at these worships, then it would have been fine. Is that the problem? No. Something else. Now, this is out of um, the New Bible Dictionary, 3rd edition. You, uh, the references are in the notes. Just the Hebrew noun Baal, B-A-A-L, means master, possessor, or husband. Used with suffixes like Baal Peor or Baal Berith, the word may have retained something of its original sense, but in general, Baal is a proper name in the Old Testament refers to a specific deity, Hadad, the West Semitic storm god, the most important deity of the Canaanite pantheon. Yahweh was master and husband to Israel, and therefore they called him Baal. In all innocence, 
But naturally, this practice became confused in the worship of Yahweh with some of the Baal rituals, and it became essential to call him by some different title. And Hosea, in Hosea 2.16, proposes is another word for husband besides Baal. Okay, do you see already how things are getting blurred? The Hebrew word Baal means master, possessor, and husband. That's what it means in the Hebrew. They used to call God this. The phenomenon associated with thunderstorms are closely linked to Baal. Baal was said to appoint the seasons of rain. Clouds were thought to be part of his entourage. Lightning was his weapon, and it may have been his invention. The windows of Baal's palace were thought to correspond to opening of the clouds through which rain flowed. Rain was important to Canaanite agriculture, and Baal was consequently a god of fertility and a prodigious lover as well as a giver of abundance. The the ergoretic, the ergoretic literature preserves a cycle of myths in which Baal is the protagonist. They tell of his battle against Lotan, the Leviathan, the great serpent, and of his struggles against other adversaries, including the Yam, the sea, and Mot, death. So here we have a god who controls weather, brings life, fertilizes the land, fights against the great serpent, and fights against death. The struggle between Baal and Yam has left its mark on Israelite literature in the form of stories about allusions to Yahweh's encounters with watery enemies, the Leviathan in Scripture. And you can find this in Isaiah and Psalms and other places. Through through his struggles, Baal achieves the first rank among the gods. Along the way, Baal dies and rises again. Providing the Ugaritic literature with stirring themes. So, question, what is the problem with worshiping a God who controls the weather, the lightning and the rain, who brings rain, sunshine, fertility, who blesses with a full harvest, who wars against the great serpent and death, who dies and is resurrected. What's the problem with worshiping this God? Are those all the attributes? Because if that's just, if that's all of them, then it's okay. But if what? he has more attributes, then it might not be okay. We're getting there in just a second. Is there a lesson for us if we were to give the Elijah message today? Was it that Baal represented the characteristics of Satan and, and cloaked into this? And this is what we read out of Patri- Prophets and Kings, page 124. Notice what she says here. Determined to keep the people in deception, the priests of Baal continued to offer sacrifices to their gods and to call upon them night and day to refresh the earth. With costly offerings, the priests attempt to appease the anger of their gods. Did you hear it? With zeal and perseverance worthy of a better cause, they linger around the pagan altars and pray earnestly for rain. What caused Baal to be a false god? Is it false to worship the creator, the giver of life, the conqueror of death, the sacrificial god, the god who wars against the great serpent, the god of the weather? What about Malachi's prophecy regarding the Elijah's returning? Will we face a similar problem? A God construct taught by religious leaders with all sincerity and authority of their office in which people are led to believe that God, the God who controls the weather, the God who blesses with fertility and abundance, the God who fights against the great serpent and death, the God who died and rose again, also requires appeasement or payment in order to be just. Could this be the very lie we are to confront as Elijah confronted it? Could those who confront this lie be the ones who are translated without seeing death? Is it wrong to worship a God who must be appeased? One who requires payment. One who who must have sacrifice to assuage his wrath. Is this not the heart of pagan worship and what Elijah is supposed to oppose? Isn't there a... Spirit prophecy uh, quote that suggests that if we if we worship a god with with those sorts of character attributes, it's, it's just as verily idolatry as if we were bowing down to wood or stone. Next sentence in my notes: Faith I live by, page fifty nine. <laughs> Thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily serving a false god as were the servants of Baal. Are we worshiping the true God as He is revealed in His Word? in Christ, in nature, and are we adore, or are we adoring some philosophical idol enshrined in his place? God is a God of truth. 
Justice and mercy are the attributes of his throne. He is a God of love, of pity, and tender compassion. Thus he is represented in his Son, our Savior. He is a God of patience and long-suffering. If such is the being whom we adore and to whose character we are seeking to assimilate, we are worshiping the true God. Did you hear anything about a God who required appeasement here? The gods whose wrath must be assuaged and turn away. Yes. I want to add to what Russell was asking a little bit ago in Revelation 16, uh, 8. talks about the sun scorching people with fire, etc. And they cursed the name of God who had control over the plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. So it seems by this that that was what he meant for it to be, a chance to repent and glorify him. But they did exactly what Pharaoh did and just hardened their hearts and cursed God. Excellent, excellent. Yes, we're going to see how this all plays together. Elijah was sent with a message that Baal is false and the true God is not like this. The proponents of the false God outnumbered the people of God and sought their destruction. God empowered his representatives to stand firm and call to account the leaders who misrepresented him and led the people to believe in, in a God who required a payment and sacrifice to appease. Do we find any parallels today? Any parallels today, people? Has the idea that God requires blood to be forgiving entered Christian thought? Has the idea that Jesus died to appease the wrath of God or assuage the wrath of God entered Christian thought? Has the idea that God requires a legal payment entered Christian thought? Is this part of what the Elijah message is to oppose? Well, here's some statements I'm going to share with you. Here is a statement from a paper called A Call to Evangelical Unity from Christianity Today, June 14, 1999. We affirm that the atonement of Christ, by which, in his obedience, he offered a perfect sacrifice, propitiating the Father by paying for our sins and satisfying divine justice on our behalf according to God's eternal plan, is an essential element in the gospel. So the key here, Christ died to propitiate who? The Father needed this payment. Recently, a book was recommended to shed light on what some believe are deficiencies in our class. Here are some excerpts from that book. This is the book right here, The Cross of Christ by George Knight. Here are some excerpts from the book. I'll just share with you. This is page 74. First two sentences are quite right. And notice how the response after they quote these two truths. It says, Paul always speaks of people being reconciled to God. He, and he quotes 2 Corinthians 5.19, Romans 5.10, Colossians 1.20. All right. He never refers to God being reconciled to us. This is absolutely true. Notice the very next words. In spite of that fact. <laughs> now, what does that set you up for? In spite of that fact, what's coming next? Well, there's an exception where it's really not true. That's what's coming next. So we'll, here. In spite of that fact, however, we should recognize that sin affected both sides. Humanity's rebellion and sense of guilt alienated it from God, while God was separated from humankind by... What separated God from humankind? Get this. God was separated from humankind by his necessary hatred and judgment of sin, his wrath. Christ's sacrificial death pro- propitiation removed the barrier to reconciliation from God's side. Appeasement. Now, let's be careful here. Does a doctor hate disease? Absolutely. Does God hate sin? Absolutely. Does something have to be done to remove from the doctor his hatred of disease in order for the doctor to care well for his patient? Think about the twisting here. God never has to have anything done to remove his hatred from sin, of sin from his heart. Never. It will never be removed. God will always hate sin, as a a doctor always hates disease. Notice what will happen in a quote here in a few moments, is that they will take the subtle little step. Right now, the first one, um, God's anger and wrath um, and judgment on sin, right now in this paragraph... Now watch this. This is the uh, same book, page 64, 10 pages earlier. Leon Morris writes that if God's wrath is regarded as a very real factor so that the sinner is exposed to its severity, then the removal of the wrath will be an important part of our understanding of salvation. Where is the sacrifice of Christ being applied? Where was, where was Baal worship and sacrifice being applied? 
to, to appease God. Okay? Of course, if we diminish the part played by divine wrath, we shall not find it necessary to think seriously of propitiation. Thus Mark, Morris comments in another connection. If people are to be forgiven, then the fact of that wrath must be taken into consideration. It does not fade away by being given some other name or regarded as an impersonal process. In other words, God's wrath must be propitiated or turned away from the sinner. The anger of the doctor towards disease. Now, something must be done so that doctor won't be angry at the patient. You see the, you see the leap here that they've made. They're constructing a God whose, whose anger and wrath is a barrier between uh, the, uh, the, the mankind and God. And that God is not only angry at sin now, he, he, he's, he's got wrath towards the sinner. And something has to be done to remove that wrath, or else that wrath remains as a barrier between us and God. That was one of the aims of Christ's self-sacrifice on the cross. And then here's out of 27 fundamental beliefs of the SDA church. Page 111. Christ's self-sacrifice is pleasing to God because this sacrificial offering took away the barrier between God and sinful man. There's the barrier. In that, okay, here's the barrier. In that Christ fully bore God's wrath on man's sin. So what's the barrier according to this? Is it our sinfulness, our warped minds, our darkened hearts, our rebellious nature, our carnal hearts? Is that the barrier that keeps us away from God? No. No. What is it? The wrath of God is the barrier. Or, in the same page of the same book, for a loving God to maintain his justice and righteousness, the atoning death of Jesus Christ became a moral and legal necessity. God's justice requires that sin be carried to judgment. God must therefore execute judgment on sin and thus the sinner. The doctor must execute judgment on disease and thus the diseased person. Doesn't make any sense at all. Now get this. In this execution, the Son of God took our place, the sinner's place, according to God's will. Who's the executioner in this? And who's being executed? Notice what they're describing here. And then this has led to theologians writing the following. This is out of Ministry Magazine, February 2007. Why did God the Father choose a cross to be the instrument of death? Why did he not choose to have Christ instantly beheaded or quickly run through with a spear or sword? Was God unjust in executing judgment on Christ with a cross when he could have done it by beheading a noose, a sword, a gas chamber, a bolt of lightning, or a lethal injection? Did God execute his son at the cross? Or, this is from the director of the BRI, the Biblical Research Institute, who we have been referred to, to take our theology to, to get it uh, blessed and endorsed as orthodox in this church. This was quoted out of the Review and Herald, December 2007, page 40. One of the fundamental problems with the moral influence theory is that it rejects the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. The idea that God had to kill the innocent instead of the guilty in order to save us is, in, is considered a violation of justice. So who does this theory have as, as being the source of death? The, the, in, the, in, the executioner of the, of the cosmos. Did God choose to execute his son on the cross? Or was this done at the instigation of Satan and unholy men? Is God the source of killing, the source of death, the executioner of the cosmos? Or does death arise from sin? Well, this is out of Isaiah 53.4. This is his prophecy, talking about our suffering Savior. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. What's the prophecy saying? This, this thing will happen. This false theology will happen. What did Jesus actually say about his father's actions to him at the cross? What did the father do to him? Let me go. My God, my God, why are you executing me, killing me? No, why have you let me go? And this is from Ellen White, Desire of Ages 761. Notice who she says killed Christ. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of heavenly beings. Who is the murderer here of Christ, the killer of Christ? What do you think about a theology that puts God in that role? 
would you say that that's rightly pagan? Does Elijah need to stand up and oppose this view? Does the Elijah message need to stand up and oppose this view? Yes. What's interesting is if you read the Biblical Research Institute article, the little piece that was sent out once, from that same group it clearly says that if Christ paid the debt to God or was doing that, that that's clearly pagan. So the confusion is very interesting. The way that oh, no, no, if you read, yes, no, I know this book right here. If you read this book, it's contradictory all the way through one paragraph contradicts the next constantly because there is inconsistent. They have woven in this, this, this pagan idea of a God construct and they've tried to legitimize it. They, they believe it just as the prophets of Baal believed it. They do. But I'm going to tell you, it is contradictory. They say it, just as I read, but then we read these things about God's wrath has to be propitiated. The barrier is, is God's wrath. Christ had to, what was the quote I just read a moment ago? Yes, uh, God was separated by humankind by his necessary hatred of judgmental sin, and Christ's sacrificial death propitiation removed the barrier to, recon, uh, uh, to reconciliation from God's side. That is uh, the cross of Christ, page 74, by night. So removing the barrier from God's side, yet it wasn't paid to God. I mean, you see the inconsistencies there. So. They don't even have the, the definition for the wrath of God correct. It's not even a scriptural scripture definition of the wrath of God. That's correct. That's laid out in Romans. That's correct. And I'm suggesting that there has been, just as the people of Israel were God's people, and God blessed them with the prophets and the message of the coming Messiah. And Satan targeted that organization with a distorted God construct, such that they paganized what it meant to believe in God and Christ, that we also are a people called to give a message to prepare the world for the advent. And, our, and the Christian institutions have been infected with this pagan concept. And they've been infected for a long, long time. We've talked about the sanctuary message and how the prophecy of Daniel, until 2300 days and the sanctuary be cleansed. We talked about how the war is a war for the mind. We talked about how the man of sin will arise in Thessalonians and set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And we've talked about how the way that we wage war, we don't uh, wage war like the world does. We have divine weapons to demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And that this, this, this little horned power waged war against the saints by introducing distorted God concepts into our thinking such that we began to worship Satan's version of God while calling him God. And you look at what was happening in Elijah's day. They worshiped the God of the rain and the thunder, the fertility God, the God of the harvest, the God who wars against the great serpent and death, the God who died and was resurrected. They worshiped this God and they called him Baal. But at the core and the heart of it, that God had to be appeased by sacrifices. He's an angry God who must punish. And I'm suggesting that that same God is being taught today. And this is what the Elijah message is to stand up and to oppose. Yes, saw some hands. Their logic would be then that if I smoke, that I must die of love cancer. Is that right? No, their logic would be if you smoke, that the doctor must execute you (laughs) for smoking. But then what happens when the man who's never smoked dies of lung cancer? Why did he do that? You know, he, he didn't pay his tithe properly. Okay. <laughs> Is this always the God concept that people are referring to when they say Jesus paid it all? Yes, absolutely. Yes, they're pay, paying the, the legal debt. The legal debt that God must exact upon the sinner. That Jesus paid that legal debt. That's what it is, yes. You know, what helped me to kind of convert from one concept to another was the understanding as being a father. You know, I look at God as being my father, loving me, and he is love. And I know for me, in my sense, raising my children, that, you know, they're, they're in safe zone right now, but if it turns that one day that they turned away from me and, and got into drugs, alcohol, got to the point where they started, you know, robbing because of that, and got to the point where they even got to, you know, to murder something, somebody and were <clears throat> judged and convicted and brought to the death penalty. There was nowhere in my being that I would find happiness of them executing my son. Nowhere would I find that happiness. And, and if I can't find happiness, and you know, as hard as it would be for me as a father to see my son or daughter go through something like that and then have to be you know, a victim of the, the circumstance of civil law, to be executed, there would be nothing in my being that would, would be happy about that. 
And I can't see serving a God that would have happiness in seeing me, his child, executed. Amen. Yeah, there's no, there's no question about it. It says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Yeah. Do you think that I have overstated the case here today? Now, I really want to hear from you because some people suggest that I, that I make straw men and set up straw men. That's why I brought all those quotes in from all these different sources today because I didn't want to make up a thing that, that, that was just suggesting I was creating a false picture of what is being taught. Yes? You're not. But I think sometimes in the contrast, we have to be a little cautious because... Those who believe that will never use those kind of words. That's why I use their own words. <laughs> but, but, but it will come to that conclusion, but it will not just be outright stated that way. Yes, and, and, and didn't Elijah end up having a Mount Carmel experience? There was a confrontation where things came to a head. I think things are coming to a head. Can we really compromise with this other message? Can we really compromise with this idea that, that God needed to be appeased? Oh, that's, that's what has led us to this point, because the church has been led down this quote-unquote evangelical path of propitiation of God since the 1950s. That's why we are where we are. Well, I know that the, the people um, that came to meet with this group and gave you that document um, used this book that I quoted from as the orthodox... Um, measure of where we're wrong. Yes? Why don't we get to hear the discussion? To me, they should, your discussion with them should take place in front of us. Do you think that uh, the prophets of Baal would have preferred Elijah's confrontation with them to have been done in private? <laughs> Rather than in front of the audience and the group of Israel? Why do you think they don't want this public? I've offered multiple times to let's have a meeting at the church at Sabbath afternoon. Have your church time. It can just be open. Just announce it. I'll talk. You got seven. You got seven, eight paid full-time pastors over here. Let's go ahead and have an open discussion and dialogue. I'll present the evidence. You present it. Let the people free to make up their mind. I've offered this multiple times. They will never do it. You notice this um, presentation they just had on this series that they just had. Many of you, not me, asked that I be allowed to present amongst them. Why wouldn't they do it? Yes. You know, this is a message of love and compassion. It's not going to be one in a theological debate. It's going to be one in a one-on-one confrontation in, with, with others who are, you know, it's, it's the gospel message. I, I, I appreciate you saying that so much. That is so true. And I think one of my weaknesses, and where you guys can pray for me, is I am, am easily tempted to, to those types of dialogues. Easily tempted to, to enter in those theological debates, maybe. And I need to disengage, and I think our group and class maybe should disengage that conversation and simply take the message out. Take the message out. Take it to the people. Christ spent his time preaching to the people. They kept coming to him to, to enter into debate, but he didn't go to them to try and convert them. And so maybe our energies need to refocus to take the loving message to people who are open to hear it. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. I was impressed a little bit earlier when you were, you know, sort of contrasting, and you have to do that. You know, in, in the English language, you, for people to understand things, you have to compare and contrast, okay? But the idea came to me that this is not entirely a, just a debate, you know, like, like this gentleman just said. It's not really a, totally a, a, just a theological debate. It's actually a personal matter. So the fact is that Sometimes it's so easy to be just drawn in to that, that contrast that we sort of totally cancel the idea that there is an aspect of punishment to sin. Whereas, in fact, if you are totally identified with sin and if you refuse repentance, it becomes a punishment. There's no question. And, and, and in our class, do we ever diminish the horrible outcomes for the unrepentant and the suffering and pain and ultimate death and ruin that comes from sin. We never diminish that in here. What we do is we we remove God from this construct of him being the imposer of pain, the source of death, the executioner of of suffering. We, We remove him from that role and we put it back just like the doctor in disease. Unremedied disease causes pain, suffering, and death. 
an unremedied sin in the heart is incompatible with life as God constructed the universe to run. Yes. But didn't Jesus pay my death sentence? What does that language mean? Well, that's what what I wanted you to clarify. Jesus paid a price. Okay. Um, just like a mother pays a price when she's delivering a child, it's painful, and she risks death. When okay. She Let, let's 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 review this again. Let's review this again. Remember the the movie that was out with Denzel Washington? Son's dying, and he wants to save his son, and there are no donors, and if he doesn't get a heart donor, he's going to die. And the dad loves his son so much, he's willing to give his life to save his son. Now, parents, you can understand that, right? Okay, so he goes in there and he positions himself to shoot himself in the head. Now, if the father does it, shoots himself in the head, and they take the heart and give it to the son, and the son lives, did the father pay a high price to save his son? Okay? Did the father ultimately take the place of the son, who now has the father's heart and lives, and the father's dead because he's got the son's heart? So he took the son's place. It's a substitutionary. Right? Substitutionary uh, in this way. Is it a legal payment? Unless you understand the laws of health. The laws of health say this son cannot live without a functioning heart. That's a law. You can't get around that life. The functioning heart to live. And so the salvation of that son had to happen within the constraints of the law. And the father knew that. And the only way to provide a heart was to give his life so he could have his heart. And it was all done within the confines of the law. He couldn't save the son outside the laws of health. So there's a legal aspect if you define legal as the laws upon which life is built. Number one. Number two. So that's the high, pay the high price aspect. Yes, Christ paid a terrible, terribly high price for our salvation. But used to, uh, I mean, I do a lot of things for people in exchange for a service. I paid for it. That's what I mean by Christ. The sentence was, you shall die. No, the uh, sentence. You, you, you use the word sentence. The sentence was, you shall die. How about this? God puts Adam and Eve on the top of the Empire State Building. And he says, in the day that you jump, you will surely die. And the devil comes by, flying by in the form of an eagle, and says, did God say you'll die if you jump? Ha, look at me, I've jumped and I can soar all over this planet. He knows in the day you jump, you'll soar into heaven and be just like God. So they jump, and initially they're thrilled as the speed is picking up, but then they realize they're heading just one way. And they're, head, and they're overcome with fear. And at that moment... God literally sticks out his hand and suspends them in midair. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He suspended the consequences. Earth right now is in suspended animation, so to speak. We're in an artificial situation. We're on artificial life support. We're in the ICU with a ventilator breathing for us because we're not breathing on our own. This is what God has done. He suspended the full consequences. Whole earth in the palm of God's hand. While we're here, he sent his son to the top of the building. Evil men pick up his son and throw him off the building. This time, God restrains himself and does not intervene. He does not stop it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you let me go? Why haven't you done anything to stop this? And we watch as his son falls to his death. (gasps) My goodness, what happened here? Did God just kill his son? No, not at all. We just read Satan exposed himself as a murderer at the cross when he killed his son. We see what happened here, what sin does, okay? And then... Now, all those who are still held in the hand, God says, if you let me, if you trust me, I'll put you back in harmony with the way life was built. The law of gravity, the laws upon which life operates. I'll fix it for you. I'll put you through a window. Well, God, you're always messing with my good times. Would you leave me alone? Will you get out of my life? Will you let me do things my way? Eventually, God withdraws his hand and stops suspending the consequences. And guess what happens? Boom. Ball to our death. Okay? Yes. So... There was no death sentence. There was a description in the day you eat of the fruit. In the day you step outside of the principles upon which I have constructed life to operate, life will stop operating. You will die. This is not a sentence of death upon you that I will be enforced to invoke. This was a consequence, an inevitable outcome, when we no longer are in harmony with the way God built life. Now the ransom one. Ransom. Ransom. What does ransom do? Ransom metaphor. Ransom is the price necessary to free one from bondage or held hostage, right? Question, what holds us bondage? Two things. The lies that we were told about God that we believe we are still held hostage by in our minds. Thus, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Christ came to reveal the truth. Father, I finished the work you've given me to do, John 17. I have made you known unto men. 
Revealing the truth about God destroys the lies. That's part of the price. The ransom price is truth to destroy lies to set us free because we're held in bondage by lies. Second thing we're held in bondage by, our own carnal natures. Our own carnal We have a carnal heart at enmity with God. We can't fix it. We naturally war against him. We're held in bondage by it. Christ came to generate and regenerate humanity. He took upon himself our iniquity for the purpose of going to the cross and destroying the carnal nature and rising again in a purified humanity that he perfected in his own life. So we read in Desire of Ages, page 761, that the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give, but Christ, but Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept them. So the ransom price, truth, and a new humanity a new heart and mind that we receive from Christ. This is the price necessary. Is it a legal price? No, it's a reality of what was necessary in order to save and heal. So we find this language can be used, but what happens is it gets filtered through this pagan construct so that we use this language now, well, Baal needs to be appeased. The wrath of Baal needs to be assuaged. Christ came to die so that Baal wouldn't be angry. So the wrath of Baal would be turned away. And this is, I'm going to tell you, and so as I study this out, for me, it looks exactly like what Elijah was dealing with. Does it not look the same to you? And God is calling a people at the end of time to present an Elijah message. And this is, this is what, um, two quotes as we close up. Signs of the Times, May 30, 1895. The atonement of Christ was not made in order to induce God to love those he otherwise hated. Wait a minute. The wrath of God must be turned away from sinners, we read in this other book. He, his hatred against sin and sinners has to be propitiated, we read in this other book. Right here we, re- we read, the, the atonement of Christ was not made in order to induce God to love those he otherwise hated. It was not made to produce a love that was not in existence, but it was made as a manifestation of the love that was already in God's heart. An exponent of the divine favor in the sight of intelligent beings, in the sight of worlds and fallen, in the sight of the fallen race. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We are not to entertain the idea that God loves us because Christ has died for us, but that he so loved us that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. The death of Christ was expedient in order that mercy might reach us with its full pardoning power. Signs of the Times, May 30, 1895. And then, the Elijah message, people. Is it wrong to consider with this message, the message of God's character of love, uh, to, is, is to lighten the world, is the Elijah message. Here, Christ's Object Lessons 415. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth, the last rays of merciful light. The last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. Notice, guys, Satan does not care if we go to the world with a message about the seventh-day Sabbath, about the state of the dead, about the which foods you should eat or not eat, about the sanctuary mission of Christ in heaven, if all that is centered around a God who must be appeased and his wrath must be taken away. There's nothing but Baal worship. There's nothing but the fertility God who brings rain, who brings uh, uh, the harvest, who wars against death, wars against the serpent, who died and rose again. All those He didn't care about all that as long as he had at the heart of it. Satan's character of an angry, wrathful God who must be appeased. And we've got a distortion, I'm afraid, in Christianity. Not just our church, in Christianity. Recently, someone told me, a pastor, that they don't think I should teach in any evangelical church. Russell was there. Because I oppose this view of God. And they recognize that all evangelical churches hold this view of God. What is revelation? What is our historic view said about all those other evangelical churches, but they are the daughters of Babylon, right? The daughters of the great whore <laughs> of revelation. Why? What is the great whore doing? But set spreading. Making the nations drunk with their wine. Making the nations drunk with their wine, and their wine is distorted ideas about God. And if you look at it, this idea about an angry wrath of God who has to be appeased has affected all the nations of the world. All the religions of the world have been affected. They either respond to it by becoming non-thinking, fear-based, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, let's go out and kill in the name of our God. Or they reject God. There's no God. 
and we become agnostics or atheists or something else. The world is reacting to this message. And we're heading headlong down. So I think we have a, a mission. Don't you think there's more potential in reaching those who don't believe in that kind of a God at all than those who <laughs> believe in God but have this twisted view? I would tell you, in my experience doing this, outside of our particular organization, it, this message is much, much easily received. People embrace it. They love it. They are hungry for a God of love that they can love and trust. I don't get this opposition when I treat, speak to non-Adventist audiences around the world. They love this beautiful God as Jesus revealed him to be. Very much like Jesus went to the Samaritans. And what did they do when he was in Samaria? They begged him to stay. They didn't want him to leave. He went back to, to Israel. And what did they do? They tried to stone him. Isn't it true? Yeah, this message, you're exactly right. I, I, and I deal with people who don't believe in God at all, and I always start with, tell me about the God you don't believe in, and when they describe this horrible, punitive, wrathful God must be appeased, and, and his wrath must be assuaged, this kind of stuff, I say, good for you, I don't believe in him either. And I show this other thing, and it makes so much sense. They go, I love this. If you read on our, our Facebook page uh, um, some months back, we had a dialogue with, a, with an agnostic um, um, scientist who uh, said, I've, I've read much of what's on your website and your, and your Facebook page, and I love what you're teaching, but why do you have to have this thing called God in there? <laughs> I mean, it's just beautiful, all these principles you're teaching, and it makes so much sense. And then we had some, because he's looking at the evidence of science, and he would throw out scientific evidence, and, and we would actually show that what he, show, what he put forth is more consistent with creation than evolution. Everything he put forth, we showed more consistent with creation and evolution. And at the end of our long dialogue, it's on the Facebook page to read if you want to read it, several different threads. Um, at the end of our long dialogue, he said, you know, if I were to believe in God, this is the God I'd believe in. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the last thing that the angels that got thrown out of heaven heard or believed was that God would not forgive them. Satan, that was the thing that Satan said, you have gone too far. You're identified with me. There's no hope for repentance for you. God does not love you anymore. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I wish we had time to, to go into more of the lesson, but we're, we're just winding up right now. So the, all the, the rest of the days are in the, in the notes. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we find ourselves at, at, at a wonderful, precarious, exciting, and dangerous time in earth history. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We know that we come to you with, uh, with minds that have been damaged by sin, hearts that have been infected by sin, in need of your grace and goodness. We ask for your spirit to enlighten our minds so we can see the truth about who you are. We ask that you will take and write on our, the tablets of our hearts the law of your kingdom, the law of love. We pray for discernment and wisdom how can we take this message forward, Father? Empower us, enable us. We know that we will meet opposition. We want to be part of your Elijah people. We want to be taking a message that will lighten the world for your return, the message of your character of love. We don't want to be duped by those sincere people who are presenting a different view by their sincerity, by their, by their reputations. We want to, to, to build our belief systems on the truth itself and the evidence of your word. We pray that you will lead us in this, in this regard, enable us, empower us, and our friends around the world and all the countries who are listening. We have asked for your special uh, providences in their regard. They might be able to take this message because we want to see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.